Dr. Neha Bhatta, and you're listening to Health Discovered, the show dedicated to taking on important topics and discussing what they mean for your health. As always, we bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. We'll also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions like this one. Type 2 diabetes is called by some a modern preventable pandemic. So what practical changes can we all make to take control of our diabetes risk? Here to help us answer that question, I'm really excited to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. John White, who's WebMD's chief medical officer and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. White. It is great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. We're talking about how to take control of your diabetes risk, which also happens to be the name of your new book. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, what a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations, first of all. And before we talk more about the book, I'd love if you could tell us a few definitions. So what is diabetes? What is prediabetes? What do we need to know? Well, when we think about diabetes or prediabetes, I always tell patients it's really about understanding glucose and insulin. And and sometimes we make it so complicated, but glucose really is the energy that drives our cells, drives our body. And insulin really is that hormone, that mechanism that we use to get glucose in our cells. And for our conversation today, and Neha, I know you've seen a lot of patients with diabetes, it's really about type 2 diabetes, which is typically, we used to see it occur later in life. We're seeing it earlier now, and we'll talk about it. But it's really about insulin resistance. Our cells aren't using insulin correctly, or they become resistant to it, they don't respond to it. So then you can't get glucose into your cells, and it stays in your bloodstream. And then you start to develop these complications of high blood sugar. So I think that leads me to a great question that I often get from my patients, which is, well, okay, so you're telling me that my sugars are high. Um, I feel fine. So what's the big deal? So walk us through that. You know, sometimes patients feel fine, but when you really push them a little, you find out that they've been gaining a lot of weight or they always seem to be thirsty or they're urinating a lot. Some of those typical symptoms that we see with diabetes and and people, it's easy to kind of dismiss it and, and say, oh, it must be something else. But what we know about diabetes, number one cause of becoming blind, diabetic retinopathy, leading reason why people develop kidney damage and chronic renal failure. If you're a woman with diabetes, your risk of heart disease increases in your 40s and 50s, which typically it doesn't until you're in your 60s. And diabetes in general makes you more than twice as likely to have a heart attack. Ask a person with diabetes, and they'll tell you about the numbness and the tingling that they often have. So the problem is diabetes causes a lot of other health issues, and we need to diagnose it early. And too often, we're not thinking about it. 
we say, oh, it's not in our family history, so we don't need to worry about it. Or I, I still hear, and this is partly because I trained in the South, um, a touch of sugar. Like, oh, it's not so bad. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a little bit. And sadly, that that's not the case. Diabetes is pretty serious, and we need to take it seriously. I think you make some great points. And I think for for people, we need to help them understand how to connect the dots from that touch of sugar, from that my sugar's a little high to, well, if that continues for a long period of time, these are some of the things that can happen to me. Um, so I love the way you put that. So let's talk about how big of a problem is this in the United States? Is, you said that this may be a growing issue, a growing concern. So let's talk about that some. One out of 10 people have diabetes. One out of 10. And it's actually increasing, partly because of obesity and, and probably because of our inactivity and, and poor eating habits that we're doing more of during this pandemic. But what I'm most concerned about, Neha, one out of three people, one out of three have pre-diabetes. I mean, that is a huge number of Americans. And the reality is with that one out of three, roughly about 80% don't know it. So here they are potentially progressing to type two diabetes, and they're not even aware of it. And even in those folks who have type two diabetes, at least a third don't know they have it. So you, you can't start treating it and managing it and trying to delay progression if we first don't realize, do I have it or not? So that is a great point. So, you know, that gets us to your book, which is taking control of your risk. So, you know, what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about if we're out there enjoying our lives, enjoying our meals, um, allowing COVID to make us more sedentary? How do we figure out our, our own personal risk? And then how do we take control of that? Sure. And, and there is some genetic risk component to diabetes. We've learned that in recent years, but the reality is probably about 90% of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is related to lifestyle. And we see that as obesity has increased, diabetes has skyrocketed as well. We used to use this term, I don't hear it as much anymore, diabesity. Have you heard that, Neha, yes. where it's this combination yeah. <laughs> of diabetes right. and obesity? I wish we would use that a little more, <laughs> but, but too often we, we complicate it for patients. But it really is about energy balance to some degree as well. It's about the types of food that we eat, which often has hidden sugar, even when we're trying to eat healthy. It's the amount of physical activity that modern lifestyle has afforded us so we don't expend all this energy. So we're gaining weight. And fat is hormonally active. So it's releasing these hormones that really are making our progression to diabetes sooner. It's not making our cells respond as well as they should to insulin. It's causing overproduction then of insulin, especially early on. And it's this cascade of events. And I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of patients over the years where they'll often say to me, and I'll talk to them and say, you know what? If you reduced your weight 5%, 7%, and we can talk about the studies that have shown that, you could probably come off of your medicines or you could come off of insulin or we could reduce it. 
And I've had several patients that will say to me, Dr. White, and these are their words, not mine. They'll say, I've been fat my whole life. I've only had diabetes for two. I don't think it's related. And it's really getting people to understand that some of their life choices are impacting whether or not they get diabetes. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, let's acknowledge that. It takes years to develop. So you may not think, oh, hey, I'm doing pretty good because my blood sugars are fine and I'm eating a lot of fast food. It's going to catch up to you. Everyone's at a different point, but it inevitably does. And the whole point of this book is to say, how do I reduce my risk of diabetes? But also, ultimately, how do I reduce my risk for heart disease? How do I reduce my risk for neuropathies, these painful inflammation of the nerves, which are often hard to treat once they develop? How do I give them quality of life later on so they're not having the problems with their vision and their kidney? And there are things that people can do now. That's, that is such a crucially important point. So I think let's talk through some of your guidance that you offer, starting with food. I, it's critically important. And I would just love you to kind of walk us through what, what is your guidance around how food can heal us? And I'm not a, a big fan of, oh, it has to be a certain type of diet. You need to do Mediterranean or you need to do Weight Watchers. What I talk about to, to people around food is what you also talk about, that food is medicine. It's as powerful as a prescription drug, that everything we put into our mouth impacts our body. So are you going to choose the potato chips or are you going to choose the fruits and vegetables? And 20% of Americans eat fish once a week. The rest, none. <laughs> so it's not like 20% <laughs> or more. And, and that's a concern. We know that fish in general is a better choice of meat. So I tell people, one change that you can make is you can eat fish once or twice a week in lieu of processed foods, typically you know, the hamburgers or the lunch meat sandwiches that we've all have enjoyed growing up, but they're going to have an impact on your waistline, on your health to try to have, you know, a component of fruits and vegetables. It may not work every meal, but at least one meal a day, most people have none. And, and that's a real challenge. And it is about reducing the number of sweets that we all eat. I'm just putting it out there and being honest. You can't eat ice cream and cookies all day and think that you're not going to have a problem later on. Oh boy. Yeah. It's just, so it's just these true. Are, these, you're, there are so many amazing points that you just made there. So I'm going to try to walk us through some of them. So one, my question is just about eating, making those healthy swaps. Is it that that prevents diabetes or helps reduce our risk because that's keeping us trim? Or is there something also that these healthy foods are doing to help reduce our blood sugar? It, it's really both. It's about reducing the amount of fat, which I talked about is metabolically active, but it's also about the vitamins and the nutrients that are in each of these foods. So as you know, and many of our listeners will know, fish has a lot of what's called these powerful antioxidants. So they're going to reduce the risk of these free radicals that are going around causing clots 
you know, in our, in our bloodstream and causing heart attacks and strokes. So it's a double benefit. And what's exciting now is, and I didn't think this five years ago, uh, I'm, I'm older in my, my training, but I was always brought up by the time you present with diabetes, you've lost 40 to 50% of your beta cells in your pancreas, which produce insulin and you're not going to get them back. So your progression to diabetes is almost assured. But we've learned through many well-designed trials in the last few years that you can possibly, not always, but possibly reverse diabetes and pre-diabetes especially and return to this normal blood sugar state as opposed to 5% of people progress every year once you have prediabetes. But this is the whole concept of why you want to eat healthy, why you want to eat fish. And I'm guilty of this. No one's eating hummus and carrots. You know, we're eating potato chips. We're eating ice cream. You know, I've learned chocolate popcorn. So maybe popcorn is not so bad, but when it's covered in chocolate, it's it's not so good. And, and again, it's about your daily choices over time. So you can go ahead and have that ice cream once a week or that, you know, chocolate popcorn once every other week. But too often, you know, we're doing it every day. And that's why it's so important to make this connection. And, and still people don't because they were able to do it for years. And it's only recently that they were told they have diabetes. And I, I think you make such a great point in terms of when this type of behavior pattern starts in us, right? So I have young children, you have young children. And so we know that they're having a good time right now. And we're having a good time watching them enjoy things right now. But what are we setting them up for in the future? So how do you think about that in your own home? Well, food is a learned behavior. We're not born, you know, learning that we want to eat, you know, potato chips and cookies. I mean, there is some basis to what's in them that impacts dopamine receptors and others in terms of sugar. But I am trying to find that balance, just like you and many other parents. We, you know, they're home more often than they would have been. Luckily, they're, they're back in school, but some activities are, are still limited. It's only so many, you know, trips to the grocery store. So it's it's finding that balance where I'll be honest, probably could be doing a little better in terms of the nutritional content. But but I also point this out to adults. We don't let our kids get away with saying after the first time they don't like broccoli, right? Or they don't like asparagus. And we try to my wife and I try to give them choices, right? So okay, we're not going to get in too many arguments <laughs> at the dinner table, but we're going to encourage and really figure out ways to get them to eat uh, more vegetables. I'm lucky my kids like fruit, so it's very easy to get them and they're willing to try different fruits. But often as adults, what do we say when I tell patients, oh, you should eat broccoli. I don't like broccoli. You should eat asparagus. I don't like asparagus. I hate kale. <laughs> like at, some, at some point, you have to be willing to try it seven times, 10 times, you know, different ways. We do that with our kids. But then at the same time, we're also trying not to be overly prescriptive, right? Because then that doesn't encourage behavior. The, the good thing is we have a lot of choices nowadays. And the other element that I've learned in recent years I put in the book is the role of spices and herbs and, and how do we add more flavor to things, especially fish. That, that some people, uh, it really is an acquired taste, but you have to try it a couple different ways. And, and the first recipe, 
let's be honest, isn't always, <laughs> isn't always, isn't always your best mm-hmm. example. I've had some bad uh, experiences in the past 24 months of uh, things I would have cooked a little differently. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, what I say to my patients, too, is you don't have to pick the thing you hate on this list in, yeah. in the vegetable and fruit <laughs> category. You can pick the things that you enjoy. <laughs> Absolutely right. So let's move on to physical activity, because I will tell you, again, in preparation for talking to you, I am sitting on a bouncing exercise ball to uh, uh, pretend that I've been more physically active. But, you know, COVID and the cold weather has really sort of knocked a lot of my normal physical activities um, out from my daily routine. So can you talk a little bit about the benefits of physical activity and, and how you go about incorporating that into your life? And the American Diabetes Association has this recommendation of 150 minutes a week of moderate, you know, exercise. Um, You could also switch it up. You know, AHA talks about 75 minutes of vigorous exercise, and, and that's primarily based on your target heart rate, which is 220 minus your age, and then you could do 60 to 85 percent of that to reach whether you're moderate or maximum. And if you're not active and you hear 150 minutes, that feels like, whoa, like I'm just not even going to go there because it's just not going to work. So what I tell patients is you can work up to that. It can be 10 minutes a day that you start off with, or it could be 10 minutes twice a day. It doesn't mean you have to go to gym. So often we have this idea that you have to go to a gym to get in shape. And and you may have had this. I've had patients that have said to me, uh, I have to get in shape before I can go to the gym, which I have always (laughs) felt defeats the purpose. I think some areas have been traditionally more chatty and, and social. But you don't have to spend a lot of money or get a gym membership. And what's really exciting in the last few years, we've seen about the role of high-intensity interval training. Uh, there's been ones that have shown four minutes of high-intensity exercises, you know, four times in a row, which is a total of 16 minutes. Some are even less. But what you're doing is you're exerting yourself. You're causing your cells and your muscles to expend energy. And that's good. So I'm trying to help people to say, well, how do we exercise smarter, not longer? And there's lots of good data that talk about 10 minutes, 16 minutes of high intensity exercise can be just as good as that 30 or 40 minutes of cardio that some of us are used to. And, you know, to be fair, I I see people at the gym, I've been guilty of this, you know, you're reading, on you're multitasking, right? <laughs> on the right. treadmill or the <laughs> bike. Right. And, and are you really exerting yourself? <laughs> Sometimes maybe not. And then you leave thinking, huh, like I'm not getting any benefit, but you're not putting forth all the effort. So exercise really is like a magic pill in many ways in addressing prediabetes and diabetes. And it doesn't always have to be a, this 150 minutes kind of dogma approach. And for many of us, it's just starting to get moving. I'm going to be honest. I only have, let me check. I'm in a step competition with my kids. I only have, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say I have less than 2000 steps today so far, which is not good at all. Uh, so we all have to make that effort to, to try a little harder. 
well, you know, you've beat me because I've taken my tracker and just put it on my bedside table. I don't even <laughs> look at it anymore. So you, you're, you've beaten me. You can tell your kids. That, well, I think the kids have smaller strides, so it doesn't really yeah. count because they always have like 20,000 by the time they get home and I'm like at three. That's right. So, you know, I think that I love the point about not thinking about the sort of goal as something that hinders you from even starting. We can try to work our way to 150 and knowing that that's a great dose, but really it's anything. It's getting up during your day and walking around. Um, it's it's anything that, as you said, kind of wakes your cells up and gets them to to do something active. And, you know, I included a plan in the Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk book because what I've learned from patients is, and, and you may have seen this too, people will often say, tell me what to do, right? Tell me how to get started. That's what I really think is the issue. So, you know, it's hard to put in a book, a, a meal plan. You know, I, I do have this four-week meal plan and, and this, you know, exercise plan, but I say it in there, I want to give you choices. Um, so even when it, it was reviewed at times, people will be like, oh, you're not going to create something different every breakfast. Some people will stick with one thing. It's okay if it's a healthy thing, but I want to give you other choices to consider. Maybe you never considered avocado toast. Uh, maybe you haven't considered different ways to make oatmeal. In, in terms of your exercise plan, maybe you haven't considered these different types of exercises that are just body weight exercises. But here's something as a way to get started. And, and that's why I think these prescriptive diets are very popular, but in the long term, they often don't succeed because people have to like what they're doing. They have to enjoy it. There's a cultural element of food. And you, you have to recognize that as, as well as exercise. It has to be a fun activity and, and you're not going to do it if it seems a chore. So that's why, you know, I want to give people these tips and ideas. And then you make the decision after you've tried it for a couple of weeks. That's, that's a great point. Now, I want to switch to a couple of things that I think people might find surprising in your book, um, which one focuses on sleep and sugar control. So I'd love it if you could talk about that connection. Right. And it's all about our circadian rhythm, which releases hormones. And, and cortisol is one of those big ones which can impact your blood sugar. And as you may know for listeners, typically your cortisol is low at night because I'm going to try to sleep. And then it starts to rise in the morning and that's how you wake up and your blood sugar, you know, dips and then comes back up. But when you have insomnia and you have sleep disturbances, your whole circadian rhythm and hormonal release gets out of control. And it's much harder to metabolize glucose properly, partly because of the way that insulin's being released as well as some other hormones. I, I don't want to go into a whole endocrine lesson, but we, we tend to think that you know sleep is just a way to turn off our brain. It's not. It's really our lymphatic system removing toxins. It's really about recharging and resetting. And it's about the release of, of hormones. Other hormones involved, as folks may know, are something called melatonin and orexin. All of these have a relationship to blood sugar control. And when you disrupt your sleep, you disrupt your blood sugar control. Numerous studies have shown that. 
you know, over the years. It, it's such an important thing for us to recognize that because it is very hard. You know, sometimes the more you think about, well, I've got to get a good night's sleep, the less you're likely to have it. Um, so what are some strategies that people can consider when they're recognizing that sleep is, is medicine as well for your sugar? And there's a whole science of cognitive behavioral therapy, which, you know, we don't have enough time to go over all of those principles, but people that are listening should consider talking about it to their doctor or to a therapist because some of it revolves around sleep deprivation and then resetting everything. But, you know, I even talk about, you know, simple things about treating your bedroom like a spa, which is in general, it's quiet, it's dark. The one difference is we've seen data that says uh, cooler is better. So spas are usually warm. Uh, so you want to keep your your bedroom temperature really about 68 to 69 degrees. I am not going to let my husband hear this. Because <laughs> that, that helps you sleep. Um, you know, and then there's other elements about routines, reducing the amount of screen time, you know, prior to going to sleep. And it's not just about blue light because there are these blue light filters now. And, and the problem with blue light, it tricks your brain into thinking it's morning and then it's hard to go to sleep. But typically when you're reading late night work emails or even personal emails, you get a little agitated at times, right? And then you're trying to, to fall asleep or you're seeing on social things that are, are going on and then you're thinking about things that you need to do. And the goal is to quiet your brain before you go to sleep. And and we're kind of trained into revving it up or using, I used to do this, you know, right before you go to sleep, you're kind of reviewing your day, you know, planning your next day. That's not the time for self-assessment, you know, and scheduling. It's really about getting ready for sleep. And we've learned that with our kids. They were doing pads and other tech beforehand. And then we kind of said, you know, half an hour, an hour before bed, no uh, tech. Um, and it really has worked. It's been focused more on reading, you know, and, and maybe some other games. So there are some strategies that we can do, even in terms of reducing the amount of, you know, sugary beverages, alcohol before bedtime as well. That's right. And I think, you know, one of the things you point out is that diabetes travels often with obesity, which can also travel with sleep apnea. So sometimes you may, you know, feel that you're not getting a good night's sleep and you're having a hard time figuring out what's going on. So that's something else to talk about with, with your doctor or health professional. Absolutely. And I want to go into another topic that I think all of us can relate to, which is stress. So, you know, I'll tell you a story. I um, have been pregnant three times. Each time we get screened for gestational diabetes, which is diabetes during pregnancy. And every time I fail that first screen, every time. And just seeing that causes a lot of stress and it does, you know, affect me. And then I get my, you know, full three-hour test and everything's always fine, thankfully. But, you know, let's talk about that bi-directional relationship between, you know, some people want to stay away from finding out these things because it causes stress. Um, but it's important to sort of, by understanding that you can take control, that may remove some of the stress and allow you to do some of these healthy behaviors. 
I've been using this term FOFO. Um, you know, we know FOMO, which is fear of missing out. FOFO is the fear of finding out. You, you don't want to know. So if you don't measure it, then you, you won't be able to tell. And, you know, we didn't and talk about the role of screening, which we have, you know, better screening tests, you know, hemoglobin A1C or fasting blood glucose, which, which people would get, you know, the American Diabetes Association recommends it for anyone over the age of 18 who has some underlying health condition like obesity, and then everyone over the age of 35. Some other groups have different recommendations. I'm a big supporter of finding out. So, so doing that screening, uh, with an A1C or, uh, a fasting, you know, blood sugar, you pointed out the three hour test that we used to use a really long time ago, something called the oral glucose tolerance test that, that is not used much anymore for, for regular, uh, folks outside of, you know, following up for gestational diabetes, but, but the role of stress plays a, a critical role. And, and when you think about it, when you're stressed, even at work, you start to make mistakes. You, you know, I, I use the example of, you know, what happens to your brain? You see it on game shows. Why don't people know those answers you're thinking? <laughs> because they're stressed and they, and they can't recall it. Well, think about what's happening to your body. If you're experiencing stress every day, it's impacting the ability of your cells to function properly. We've seen that in terms of cancer risk, and we see it in terms of diabetes risk. And, and typically in short-term stress, which can be good, you know, it's the release of adrenaline, right? It's that primitive fight or flight. So you want to be able to metabolize, you know, energy. You want more energy, which is going to be that cortisol release and more adrenaline, which is going to raise your blood sugar. And in the setting of acute stress, that can be a good thing. But in the setting of chronic stress, where your blood sugar is continuously elevated and where you're not metabolizing that blood sugar well, that accelerates the risk and the progression to diabetes and prediabetes. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about screening. So you mentioned some groups that, that should consider screening. Should we all be going to our doctors and saying, hey, please check me for diabetes and prediabetes? What's, what are your kind of thought process on that? In general, diabetes, type 2 diabetes has occurred when we're older. So that's why it used to be 40 or 50. Now we're down for everyone for ADA with 35 and older. But we're seeing prediabetes and diabetes much earlier. So that's why we're saying over the age of 18, if you have some of these other underlying health conditions, because this is an acknowledgement that if we find people early on in pre-diabetes, that we're going to be able to stop their progression of di to diabetes. Because remember, I said, by the time you're at diabetes and you're having symptoms, you've lost 40 to 50% of your beta cells. That makes it much harder. And then it's a march, a 5% progression march, basically every year. But if I find you early on, and I can help talk about those lifestyle changes that are driven by science. So it's not just about losing a limb. That's what people always think about. But let's be honest, people do lose limbs because of the blood supply that becomes compromised to diabetes. You can prevent that. And that's a good thing. And we're not saying you have to give up everything that you enjoy. Some of those are learned, as I said, learned tastes, learned behaviors, but we want you to have this rich quality of life 
and long life. And diabetes can be a debilitating disease, but we have to screen. And I do think most people likely need to be screened every year. And if you're normal, you may not need to be rescreened for two or three years, but you got to have it on your radar screen. You got to be talking about it to your doctor. And if you're starting to experience some symptoms like increased urination, you're urinating a lot, you're thirsty a lot, you're eating a lot, that could be a sign. I had a patient a couple of years ago um, and she had a lot of these symptoms, what we were just saying, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, urinate a lot, thirsty a lot, eat a lot. And she said to me, she came in actually to the emergency room because she was feeling dizzy and lightheaded and her blood sugar was like 650. <laughs> so, you know, wow. it's very, very, very high. And she wow. said to me, she knew something was wrong because she was so thirsty. She wanted to start drinking out of the toilet bowl. And I was like, why did you wait so long? She's like, I just thought I was thirsty a lot. And, you know, part of it is we we don't acknowledge some of the symptoms that we're having. But if she had been screened earlier, we would have seen that she had already progressed to diabetes or better yet, three, four years ago, that she has prediabetes. And how do we then help give her tools? That's the other thing, Neha, we tell them about it. And, and tell them the diagnosis, but then we actually help them with shared decision-making and partnership, how to manage it. Right. Absolutely. And I think it, this is a critical place to talk about, you know, certain health equity concerns. So sometimes it's important that we talk about this, we screen for it, and we recognize that not everybody is going to have access to these health promoting foods or safe places to get physical activity. Um, so, you know, I think that a lot of health systems now are working to address these as social determinants with other services. Can you talk about how, how you see that and and what do you do in your own practice? I think that's a critically important role in terms of talking about issues of food insecurity, not being able to eat enough. I've had patients over the years that have said to me, you know what, you want to talk about fruits and vegetables? They're expensive. The dollar menu at certain fast food restaurants goes a long way in keeping my kids full. And that's important. And, and that's right. And, and we have to figure out a way, how do we subsidize the cost of fruits and vegetables? And, and I, I didn't purposely didn't say fresh fruit, because I think even if it's frozen or canned, there's still some value to that as opposed to candy bars and French fries. I think it's, it's working with families and helping them have alternative choices that fit within their budget. Physicians aren't always the best people to do that. And that's why we have this great field of diabetes educators that can work with patients who have prediabetes and diabetes and help them make better choices. But, but we have to acknowledge that the element of cost and access plays a role in, in what people can do. The other point about exercise, it's also about what can you do in the safety of your home? in terms of body weight exercises. It goes back to give patients the tips and tools, show them the way to some degree, and then help measure it over time. I'll be honest, I'm wearing a continuous glucose monitor right now, (laughs) partly because (laughs) I just wanted to to learn more about what some of my patients 
experience. Right. So I don't have diabetes or, or pre-diabetes, but I, I have been finding it enormously helpful in terms of showing me what happens to my blood sugar after eating, particularly two hours later, something called postprandial glucose, seeing how my glucose levels are more steady after exercise. But these can be expensive and everyone can afford them and insurance sometimes doesn't cover it. But then how do we subsidize that and make that more available? Think if we could do that, you know, for two months with people with prediabetes and show them what's happening to their body. That's better than me talking to them in a 15 minute visit. They're going to see for themselves how they're responding. And there's a lot of other tech tools that people can use, but we need to make them more available from, from an, as you point out, uh, an equity perspective as well. But we're going to have a lot more tools and resources for, for patients to use. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's another thing that may take away the FOFO, which I, I love that term, is just that once you do find out or if you do find out that something's not quite right, you just have so much more opportunity to address it and you're more likely to change your behaviors and what you reach for, whether it's that bag of potato chips you said or that apple. Um, maybe finding out will help you make those decisions, um, make it a little easier to make the right decision. Absolutely. I'm really also curious as we're sort of winding down about your thoughts on cure and reversal. So if we're following this plan and we're, we're doing a lot of all the things that we can do correctly or in the best way possible, let's say, how do we think about cure reversal and how do our, our diabetes medicines fit into all of this? And, and words do matter. And, you know, I want to point out, as, as I do in the book, that medications do serve a role for many people. Everyone's not going to be able to make lifestyle choices. Everyone's not at the same place when they're diagnosed. So there is a role for medications for many people. I typically don't use the word cure. I don't like the word cure from a physiologic perspective, as we've talked about a few times, what's happened to their beta cells in terms of the pancreas that's responsible for releasing these hormones, insulin and glucagon, uh, and have a chance to talk about that in the liver. Reversal, the other word I use, Neha, is remission, right? So we kind of make the problems that you were having dormant, right? Because we want to make sure that they don't reoccur, which often is the case when people lose weight. They gain it again later. So reversal, remission, you know, if I wanted to be, you know, very scientific, which doesn't help for people, I'd say I'm, I'm returning you to euglycemia, which means <laughs> I can get you back to normal blood sugar. But that's essentially where I want you to be because then you're not going to see that progression to these complications that we've talked about. So I don't think we're ready to say the word cure, maybe one day, but I think it's more about the issues of reversal, remission, stopping the progression, which is the natural course if you have prediabetes. They did a study in China a few years back and saw that more than 80% of people with prediabetes over about a five-year period of time progressed to diabetes. We see not the, the same numbers in the United States, but still very high. So if we can stop that progression, reverse that progression, put it in remission, 
That's what I think is so exciting to talk about these lifestyle changes because, again, you're back in control. These are things you can do. You're not destined to have diabetes. With rare exception, it's not your family history that has made you have diabetes. It's really probably more likely the behaviors that your family share in common in terms of certain things that you eat. And, you know, we see a huge amount of diabetes and stroke, you know, in, in the South in certain belts. And, you know, I get it when I've been down there, I'm like, this lemonade is delicious. <laughs> we eat the lemonade all the time and, and barbecue. And then I've learned like this barbecue sauce has a lot of sugar. That's why it's so delicious. You know, I can get that at the airport, you know, in, in some of these cities. But if you're doing it every day, the sugar content is, is so high. And sometimes you're not even aware of it. That's the other issue as well. But if I tell you, Neha, you have the ability to not to have to go on insulin or to come off of the amount of insulin or, you know, to really understand the role of metformin, which is typically the drug that we first start you on. That puts it back in your hands to say, this is how I want my life to be. It's not necessarily going to work for everyone. You really have to do it early on, typically within those first five years of diagnosis. But we have more data than ever before that lifestyle changes can reverse, can put in remission that progression of prediabetes to diabetes, as well as hopefully bring diabetes back to normal blood sugar control. Yeah, you know, thinking about your word remission brings me to this point. So this is your second book. Your first was on um, taking control of your cancer risk. And this is the second in the series, taking control of your diabetes risk. Um, what are some of the things that you found in common with the two, putting both conditions, reducing your risk for, for both conditions? There are lots of similarities. And in cancer, there's a little more genetic predisposition than there is for type 2 diabetes. But it's similar issues. There are some nuances, but it is very much the role of lifestyle, what we eat, how much activity we have, particularly every day, the amount of stress in our lives, um, the quality of our sleep. And we didn't think about those elements before when we were you know, in our training. But the good news is, as I go back to that, these are not fait accompli that, that you're going to get it. There are things that you can do, but you have to be empowered with that information. You know, there's differences in, in terms of toxins to the body that, that cause cancer more environmental issues. But in, in diabetes, it's similar in the ways that what can you do? And these are the strategies that we've been talking about that can help reduce your risk. Nothing is 100% preventable in life. And it's all about doing what you can do, controlling what you can control to reduce your risk of serious health issues. That's great. Thank you. And can you tell us sort of what what made you write these books? What what brought you to this? Since you said, you know, we didn't really learn about this in medical school. Well, like you, I, I'm very interested in empowering patients with knowledge. So here we are at, at WebMD. We want to give people better information that's going to lead to better health. And we know most doctors 
don't do this. They, they're either not trained well to do it. They're not interested in doing it. They don't see the effects of doing it. You know, I'm generalizing, but people need good resources. They need good information. It's not my thoughts or your thoughts on it per se. It's about what has the science shown and how do we distill information from the diabetes prevention trial or the look ahead trial, some of the ones I reference in the diabetes book or in, in, in cancer that are guided by science that then go one step further and say, these are the things that you could consider eating as, as part of your monthly meal plan, or these are the activities, which is to that point that patients say they learn about it and they read about it, but then it's, tell me doc, what do I do? So that's why I wanted to put it out there and kind of one resource, one reference that you don't have to, you know, do 20 links or, or buy three different books and, and start taking notes. That's right. So thank you so much for, for this discussion. I think we've covered a lot of ground. You know, one thing I think the, the COVID pandemic has taught us, at the end of the day, all we have is our health. That's what matters more than anything else. Sure, our jobs are important, but we need to be focused more on our health, our mental health, our physical health, and learning what you can do to maximize your health is is a time that is going to be well spent in, in terms of your lifespan. The new word that I've learned is health span as that's well. Right. Uh, and, right. and that's what we want to focus on. And, and remember, most health occurs when you're not in the doctor's office. So it's what you do at home, what you do at work. And, and hopefully the tips and the tools that I provide as is, is part of this take control of your diabetes risk will we'll give you some useful ones. Well, thank you again so much for your time. This was such a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Discovered from WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bhatta. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to Health Discovered wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next time. 